Now, are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, The Wonders of the Waratah. Your teacher is Dr Brett Summerall, Chief Botanist at the Australian Institute of Botanical Science, the Royal Botanic Gardens and the Domain Trust. And he joins us here on Drive. Brett, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Richard. Here's an interesting thing. We, we know that both Indigenous people and the first Europeans thought that the Waratahs were amazingly beautiful. How do we know that? Well, the Waratah is actually an Eora language word, meaning wara, you know, which is based on the, the word waradar, which means beautiful. And the scientific name for the, for the genus, for, um, for the Waratah, all the Waratahs, is Tilopia, which is actually Latin, from seen from afar, but the species name for the New South Wales Waratah are Tilopia speciosissima, and speciosissima means beautiful. So I think everybody who first saw them or saw them regularly was um, particularly... Um, Impressed, in, in, yes. Enamoured of it, I suppose, <laughs> is the word, and, and, and the names reflect that. Well, they're both beautiful names, Waratah meaning beautiful, as you say, but the, the Latin is great too, seen from afar, because that absolutely captures the experience of them sort of bobbing up in the bush. Yeah, I think anybody who's ever gone out hunting for looking for waratahs um, and to, to photograph them, hopefully not to bush pick them, um, yeah, sees them from quite a distance away. I know um, recent experiences of myself. It's you know, it's really they sh- they literally shine in the bush. Mm. What what are they related to? Because they seem just so otherworldly. They do, and you can imagine that when the Europeans in particular first saw them, they wondered what they were looking at. But they're related to the, the Banksias and the Grevilleas and all of the, the plants in the family Proteaceae, and also their South African um, cousins. So that's the Proteas, King Proteas and the Pincushion plants, lots of those things that you'll get in your so-called native um, uh, posies when you buy them from the florist. But, uh, yeah, very much a Gondwanan species that evolved in the Southern Hemisphere and found right across the uh, all of the Southern continents. Now, there are five species, right? Yes, five species. So only five species, which is a relatively small number. So we've got the, the well-known New South Wales waratah, but then there's a waratah down in Braidwood, Tilopia mongaensis, which is found in the, the Southern Highlands areas. The Gibson waratah down in Victoria... Um, the New England Waratah, it's in a very small area up in the, some of the New England in hinterland. And then the, the really lovely um, Tasmanian Waratah, which people who, anybody who's gone bushwalking up on Mount Wellington will have seen um, the, the species. But none of them compare to the, to the, the New South Wales Waratah. It really is quite a spectacular plant. Yeah, very, very showy. It's, it's, it's grown in quite um, nutrient-poor and yet free-draining soils. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, so most people would know them from places like Karingai um, uh, National Park, Brisbane Waters, up in the, of course, up in the mountains, Royal National Parks, there's quite a lot of Waratahs. So very, you know, all have that really well-draining soil, generally low nutrient, which a lot of our Australian flora likes, but very free-draining. They do not like wet feet and um, they're probably not at all happy at the moment. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the, they're adapted really, really cleverly to, to cope with bushfire, aren't they? Yeah, so they've got a number of adaptations, evolutionary adaptations that um, really l- allow them to survive um, the, the sorts of fires, that, particularly that we saw in 2019-20. They've got these swollen bases known as lignotubers, which are 
basically buried swollen stems and they can be quite large in, in some individuals and when the fire goes through they the top part of the plant or the the, um, the stems burn off but these lignotubers survive in the soil they're quite insulated and protected and they'll really quickly produce these new st new stems to to quickly recover and they also produce a seed that survives in the soil and stimulated by the smoky uh, water that you see um, after the rains then and they'll quickly produce new seedlings and we've we've seen lots of new seedlings come up after the fires a couple of years ago and what you generally see is an abundance of waratah flowers through those burnt areas usually the spring after the spring after the fire so you know a year and a half two years after the fire you'll get spectacular flowering events and we certainly saw that uh, last uh, last spring there was some really um, spectacular um, displays of waratahs in particularly in the blue mountains but also in places like karingai and royal where the where the fires went through they've also got very clever roots haven't they to cope with those low nutrient soils yeah i love these these roots and when anybody who's ever grown them in a pot plant pulls the pulls the um, the pot off and you see these tiny little clusters of what's called proteoid roots and um, they're dense clumps of roots tiny little things but they're really dense clumps and they they're really adapted for extracting the nutrients from these low nutrient soils particularly um, phosphorus so they have a very high surface area and their microbiome the, the bacteria and other organisms that live on the roots uh, are there in great numbers in multitudes as they say and they can solubilize the nutrients in the soil and make them accessible to be taken up by the waratah but um, for those of us who want to grow them in our gardens, this often means that they're really, really uh, sensitive to exposure to fertilisers and uh, we try sometimes give them too much of a good thing and effectively poison the waratah. Um, so that's quite mm -hmm. often the way in which these plants demise when you're trying to grow them. And in fact, they're kind of known for being a disappointment to gardeners often, aren't they? Uh, they are. It's really... Um, the number of uh, requests I get and, and my colleagues uh, at the gardens get to how to grow a waratah in the, in this soil, it can be a really um, uh, difficult uh, scenario. So growing, often growing them in a pot is a great alternative because you can modify the, um, the, the drainage and the nutrient conditions quite well. But there are some of the hybrid varieties that have come out now between the New South Wales and the waratah and the Gipps, Gippsland waratah uh, there's one that's called Shady Lady, and they're, they're actually flowering at the moment at uh, the Australian Botanic Garden at Mount Annan. And they're, they're happier on a heavier soil and can flower um, pretty pretty um, uh, reliably and, and frequently. Mm. Uh, are, are they all red or have, have people developed cultivars? Uh, there are some cultivars. So there was a, a white flowering form that was found in um, Kangaloon down Robinson Way, uh, which is called Wirrumbira White. And it's a sort of murky white. It's not the greatest looking white flower. Uh, and there's also yellow flowering forms of the Tasmanian waratah that occur naturally. And of course, plant breeders being what they are, they've crossed many of these different hybrids and uh, th these different types to get forms and hybrids, you know, pink ones, red ones, slightly yellow ones, all of this sort of thing, so that they're um, uh, able to grow them uh, to, in different colours. But I think most people, when they, they go to buy them from the cut flower trade, are really interest, more interested mm -hmm. in the red form because it is quite so quite spectacular. Well, they, they are so spectacular, and I, I suppose that's one of the reasons they're so often featured in Indigenous dreaming stories. Yes, and there's some beautiful dreaming stories um, associated with the Waratah. Um, they often focus on lost love and and um, and ways in which people may have been uh, uh, 
disappointed or 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 affected by um, loss and and love. So they're they're really worthwhile looking up and 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 reading. Um, they were used as a um, uh, as a food source. Uh, the nectar of the flower, which was produced in large quantities, um, was reportedly quite quite invigorating and and a good tonic for um for, for energy and the like. So they they're used quite well and and uh, and are a significant component of Aboriginal culture. Yeah, and of uh, and of the state government culture, if I can put it that way. They're the state symbol, of course. And there was there was a moment, wasn't there, when they, they were were on the on the verge of becoming the national fl- the national Yes, yeah, so there was a um, quite a competition between the Waratah and, of course, the Wattle um, for um, what would be the, the national symbol for Australia. And you can you can sort of see that the the, the flower of the Waratah, both from the architectural p- perspective and and the the elaborateness, would have a lot of um, followers for that. But it's very much you know you can imagine the politics of the day then between the, the various uh, different states. So uh, it was thought of as being too much New South Wales and so the, the wattle was chosen because it has a much wider distribution across the whole of Australia um, there's, and there's always a species of wattle somewhere that's flowering at any particular time of the year. So our Olympic colours could have been uh, green and red rather than green and gold? Yeah, it would have been quite the change, wouldn't it? <laughs> what a great lesson. Hey, uh, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure, Richard. It's uh, Brett Summerall. Brett is Chief Botanist at the Australian Institute of Botanic Science and the Royal Botanic Gardens and the Domain Trust, of course. Uh, you can listen again online at abc.net.au slash Sydney. There you can subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Next week, a lesson from Grace Carskins, Emeritus Professor of History at the School of Humanities at the University of New South Wales. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday next week.